from the Federal Judicial Center, I'm Beth Wiggins, Director of the Center's Research Division, and this is Term Talk. Joining me today are Lori Levinson, Professor of Law, and David W. Burcham, Chair in Ethical Advocacy at Loyola Law School, and Evan Lee, Professor Emeritus at UC Hastings School of Law. Thank you both for being here. The Supreme Court heard several civil rights cases this term. Today, we're discussing two cases that arose under Section 1983, Vega v. Teco and Thompson v. Clark. In another episode, we discussed two other Section 1983 cases and a case involving a Bivens claim. So Evan, let's start with Vega v. Teco. In this case, a defendant was charged and tried for assault when a statement made without Miranda warnings was then used against him. So can you tell us more about what happened? Uh, the defendant, Teco, was a nurse at a medical center, and he was charged with sexually assaulting uh, a female patient. He was then questioned uh, by the responding officer at the hospital, but the responding officer did not give him any Miranda warnings before questioning. Teco eventually provided a statement apologizing for inappropriate touching which was admitted into evidence against him at trial. But the jury nonetheless found him not guilty. He then brought suit under Section 1983. The district court held that because Miranda versus Arizona is not a constitutional right per se, it cannot form the basis of a Section 1983 claim. But the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed. It held that the use of an unmirandized statement did violate the Fifth Amendment and therefore that it could potentially form the basis of a Section 1983 claim. The United States Supreme Court, in a six to three opinion by Justice Alito, reversed and held that the violation of Miranda cannot form the basis of a 1983 claim. So, Lori, um, how did the court reach this decision? Well, the court said that despite a 2000 decision in Dickerson versus the United States, in which the court held that Miranda was a constitutional rule, it wasn't really a Fifth Amendment violation to have a situation like this, that Miranda meant for there to be a prophylactic rule. Uh, to prevent constitutional violations against self-incrimination in criminal cases. So even though Miranda was motivated by the Constitution, it's not in the Constitution. And if it's not in the Constitution, it cannot be a per se constitutional violation. Now, Section 1983 authorizes a remedy for a violation not only of the Constitution, but also of federal laws. Uh, the majority acknowledged that Miranda in many ways is a federal rule, and this could theoretically be the basis for a Miranda claim under 1983, but in the end, the court rejects that because they say that permitting damage actions for violations of Miranda would add too much to the deterrent effect of the exclusionary rule, and it would give rise to too much litigation. So in the end, even though people can raise Miranda claims as a way to keep out evidence, they're not a basis for a Fifth Amendment claim on a 1983 action. 
Okay, so Evan, Justice Kagan wrote a dissent joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor. Um, how did she analyze this differently? Um, well, she rejected the majority's proffered uh, distinction between Miranda being based on the Constitution but not being in the Constitution. She said that is a distinction without a difference. She said the Fifth Amendment created a right for those questioned in custody to be given warnings similar to the ones that the Supreme Court prescribed. And statements given in violation are required to be excluded at trial. Dickerson clearly said that Miranda was a federal rule. And for all those reasons, she said Miranda's protections are a right secured by the Constitution under the federal civil rights statute. So, Evan, what's the takeaway for the lower courts from the decision? Well, uh, you know, for decades now, um, implied federal rights of action that were recognized by the Warren Court or by the early Burger Court have been under fire by later Supreme Courts. And uh, this case very, very much follows that pattern. Okay, Lori? Well, you know, when you look at this case, you could see this ruling coming because there had been a lot of language and decisions up to now about how Miranda was more of a prophylactic rule. So what we're seeing here is that Miranda is relegated to a lesser kind of constitutional right because it was a judicially created prophylactic rule. Let's move on to Thompson versus Clark. This case involves a claim under 1983 for malicious prosecution. Lori, you want to get us started on this case? Yes, Beth. The key question in this case is what type of case disposition supports a claim for malicious prosecution? Now, under our system, many cases are dismissed without any explanation by the judge or any verdict by the jury. And there's been a split in the court as to whether a plaintiff, where this has happened, can file a suit for malicious prosecution under 1983, because typically you have to show that there was a favorable termination for the plaintiff. And does that mean that it had to be dismissed because of their innocence? Um, it's obviously hard in a situation where you don't have those explanations to show that, in fact, it was dismissed because of their innocence. The facts in this particular case is that uh, Thompson's sister had called 911 to report that he was allegedly sexually abusing his baby. The police, medical personnel show up at the home, request entry. He doesn't want to allow them to enter without a warrant. They enter anyways, and it's determined that this turns out not to be any sexual conduct. The child has a diaper rash. He's arrested and charged originally with obstructing the administration of justice uh, because he refused entry. After spending a couple days in jail, he's released and all charges against him are dismissed before he's actually tried for anything. And he turns around and sues for malicious prosecution. Now the district court in this case said reluctantly that the case had to be dismissed the malicious prosecution claim because he had not met that requirement showing that the criminal case had been favorably uh, terminated um, because of innocence. But the Supreme Court, in a decision six to three with Justice Kavanaugh writing for the majority, reversed and remanded. 
and said that the plaintiff need only show that the underlying criminal case was actually terminated in his or her favor and not that it was based on a finding of innocence. This, in fact, will change the law in at least the second, third, and tenth circuits. So, Evan, what was the court's reasoning? So the court examined the elements of the most analogous common law tort as of 1871, because that was the year that Section 1983 was passed. And the most analogous tort circa 1871 was malicious prosecution. Uh, why? Because the gravamen of the Fourth Amendment claim for malicious prosecution is quote-unquote, the wrongful initiation of charges without probable cause. So in most American courts, as of 1871, the favorable termination element of that malicious prosecution tort was satisfied so long as the prosecution ended without a conviction and was incapable of being reviewed. Occasionally, the clearest statement of law uh, of a new rule uh, actually comes in the dissent. And I think this is one of those cases. So in the course of dissenting, Justice Alito clearly states the required elements for malicious prosecution under Section 1983 from here on out. Number one, the defendant has to have initiated charges against the plaintiff in a way that was wrongful and without probable cause. Number two, the malicious prosecution has to have resulted in a seizure of the plaintiff. And number three, the prosecution must not have resulted in a conviction. Thank you both for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation.